Get ready to step into scripture with Tina. Hey everyone, welcome to Step Into Scripture with Tina. My name is Tina Wilson. I'm a pastor's wife and a mom of seven. Alongside my husband, Matt, I've committed my life to serving King Jesus as a church planter, a Bible teacher, an author, and an advocate for all-in family ministry. I'm passionate about making Christ and His church famous and about helping people develop an open-ended commitment to reading the whole Word of God Genesis to Revelation. That's the point of this podcast is that we want to help the Bible come into clearer view so that people are not intimidated by it. They are committed to reading it. And so in this season, season two, we have taken questions from listeners and viewers. Any Bible question you ask, we're willing to dig into scripture and find an answer to. Today's episode that is going to conclude this season called You Asked For It is going to be a little bit different. Instead of a Bible question, this is more of a local church question. We are part of the local church, Ecclesia in Conway, South Carolina. My husband and I, he's our lead pastor, and Jerry is part of a local church, The Crossing. And often I'm asked, what kind of church is that? And so that's the question that we want to answer in today's episode is, what kind of church is this? So to kick us off, Jerry, would you go ahead and introduce yourself because you are uniquely qualified to dig into this question with us? Well, my name is Jerry Harris. I'm the... uh uh, teaching pastor uh, at The Crossing. We're based in Quincy, Illinois. We have 11 locations across three states. Um, been there for 25 years. Uh, I turned over the senior ministry role uh, two years ago to Clayton Hensel. I'm also the uh, uh, publisher of Christian Standard, and Christian Standard magazine it's uh, actually a whole media company now, but it, uh, it began as a magazine in 1866. It's the seventh oldest continuously published magazine in America. And uh, it, it really holds, it's the repository of the history, good, bad, and ugly, of what we call the Restoration Movement. And, uh, and so if we're talking about the Restoration Movement, um, there's a lot of information there, and even though early on uh, I wasn't that interested in, in uh, Restoration Movement history, I've developed a lot of interest, a lot of love for it um, over the years. And uh, anyway, so I, those are the two things I do. I'm married. Uh, my wife is also a ministry partner. We have four children. We have five grandchildren, and uh, we really enjoy what we do. Jerry's wife, Allison is a friend of mine, someone I consider a mentor in my life, and she's actually going to be joining me for the next season of this podcast, season three, so I cannot wait for you all to meet her. Matt has been on this podcast with us before, introducing the 40-day discipleship journey, but Matt, go ahead and introduce yourself again, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'd be honored to, um, although coming after Jerry, I don't know if I have like repositories and stuff like that, um, but... I am, I am Tina's husband, and that's one of the biggest honors of my life. I'm proudly her husband and, and a father of her children. And I'm the founding pastor of Ecclesia Christian Church in Conway, South Carolina, just outside of Myrtle Beach. Um, since the church has started, we've gone from a couple people that met in a living room to a church that's now able to reach thousands of people and have over 1,500 in attendance on the weekends. Um, I get to be a regional director for Renew.org. 
And one of the things that God has blessed me with is the ability to be able to breathe into pastors here in the Carolinas and to be able to help influence uh, young pastors and church planners coming up across the Americas. So very excited. Thank you, Matt. So again, the question we're taking on this week is what kind of church is this? And Matt and Jerry both lead the same kind of church. And when someone comes to me with this question about our home church that Matt leads, Ecclesia Christian Church, what kind of church is this? My response is a Christian church. And then they say, well, aren't all churches Christian churches? Well, sure. But when I say that, what I mean is that we are seeking to be as much as we can the church that Jesus Christ established that he paid for in the Gospels, that he started on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts 2. I tell people, we're not perfect. We're not going to get everything right. But what I can guarantee you will find at this church is a commitment to knowing, understanding the whole Word of God and, and molding our personal lives, our corporate life as a church, to look like that in faith and practice the best we can. That really is just the sincere desire. Matt, what do you say to people? People say, what kind of church is Ecclesia? So when people ask me what kind of a church this is, I, I, I tell people we're, we're a pure church. We're just trying to follow the Word of God, and we're trying our best to take all the information we have, seeing what God's intent was from the beginning and trying to be the church he was building and establishing. We're not Catholic, um, and we're not protesting Catholicism. We're not Protestant. We're not reforming Catholicism. Um, we are re trying to restore ourselves as a church to what God was building. And, you know, I think a lot of times people, they have a hard time visualizing a church that's not birthed from this era after the 1500s. Yeah. You know, so we have Catholicism and then from Catholicism, all of the schisms and, and changes that came off. But then we have, we have the Reformed and, and the Protestant and, and we just choose to look back historically and look back at the scripture starting with the Old Testament is, what was the church God was establishing throughout the Bible? Yeah. And what did Christ establish? And how do we go back from the beginning and follow the plan that was initially set up before we had divisions of man? Yeah. So we're not perfect. We're not saying we're the only church. We're just saying we are a church that wants to restore ourselves as closely in our walk with Christ as what was intended. Yeah. So Jerry, you've already kind of introduced the idea of the restoration movement which stems from this idea of seeking to restore biblical Christianity. So will you dig into that a little bit more? Restoration movement, restoration church, what exactly does that mean? Restoration uh, movement churches didn't really begin in America. Uh, they uh, began predominantly in the UK, um, Ireland, Scotland, there was a lot of political stuff that was going on at that time, primarily in the Presbyterian Church, Scottish Presbyterian Church. And uh, there was a lot of government control of church at that time. And there were people um, in Scotland and Ireland that resisted that. And uh, they didn't believe that they should have to uh, pay taxes to the government they, as far as part of your church experience. And it caused them to dive deeper into well, what kind of a church we're going to be. Churches at the time were really uh, built around the idea of creed. 
And so there were creeds that were written, and you had to uh, sign off uh, on that creed. And uh, and so there were there were people back then. Uh, probably the most famous would have been uh, the Haldane family, the Sandeman family. Uh, started to come up with an idea that you talked about this a little while ago, uh, and that was to go back to the source. Yeah. Why can't we just be people who follow uh, the New Testament? That we don't have a creed; we we just use the yeah. Bible. We just yeah. we just, and we could unite on that. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times, things like creeds, and when you get politics involved. There's a lot of control factor that goes on. And of course, there were denominations, and there were hierarchies in those denominations, and and the kind the kind of corruption that comes from that. I mean, because anytime you have churches, they're made of humans, and humans have some problems sure. with sin, and so uh, that's what ends up, you know, happening. Uh, a lot of that ended up being exported to the United States. Yeah. That attitude was exported to the United States. And it was at a time when the United States was dealing politically with mm-hmm. something completely different, and that was uh, the rule of England. Yeah. yeah, And they were struggling for independence. And some of that gravitated over into church. Like, why can't the church be independent? And um, in the late 1700s, uh, right to the turn of that century... Um, there were revivals that started to happen uh, in uh, at the time was the American frontier, and uh, part of that American uh, frontier was Kentucky. Yeah, uh, it was the it was the the present American Midwest. Yeah, and uh, the the highest uh, most notable uh, revival that happened was called the Cane Ridge revival in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, in Bourbon County. Uh, Kentucky, and uh, really, really interesting revival because, I mean, this was a time when there wasn't a lot of people in the United States. It was yeah. in 1801. It was in August, and uh, about 25,000 people. Wow. And you think there's, there were, I mean, how would they even communicate? How would they even know that, yeah, hey, no what, PA. come to this, I mean, and if you've ever been there, there's nothing there. I mean, there's a, there's a big log building uh, and it's still standing, and it's actually inside of another building. But uh, people came from all over, and they were there a week. And there were a lot of spontaneous things that happened there. And it really became uh, uh, the the seedbed for the Second Great Awakening. Wow. And a lot of different uh, uh, movements, church ideas, came out of the Second Great Awakening. But the biggest one... Uh, was what started in Cane Ridge with the idea of the restoration movement. That's kind of the beginning of the story. I think one thing that's amazing in that is, you know, people will come up and they'll say, well, is it another denomination? And you get enough people together, and at any point something can start forming like a denomination. People can start um, kind of forcing stuff. But what, what was beautiful about it was that independence. And so it was the independence for everybody to pursue the Word of God and become loyal to it. And, you know, you, you think, I mean, this is, this is within 200 years of Martin Luther. And so uh, there's this beautiful time where we see, so the Catholic Church comes into dominance. 
and then you see Martin Luther step out, and then you just see all these moving pieces of people saying, hey, we want to get closer, we want to get closer, we want to find out more of what it's like to be Christians. And the Restoration Plea just took where people were forming denominations and saying, okay, this is where we're going to get, this is how close we're going to be, and then this is who we are. And it opened this door to say, okay, let's not put a door on it, and let's continually have a pursuit to get as close as we can get. Yeah. So we're not going to say this is where we are, this is our denomination, and this is, this is our hierarchy structure. We're going to move as close as we can continually to find the teachings that fit best with Scripture, to make sure we historically align. And, and I think what's amazing is today we still have that independence. So we have brothers in the same pursuit, mm -hmm. in, 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 in the same movement. But there's a diversity among us to yeah. where no, there is no man who is in charge of the movement. There's an independence that is giving us the freedom to submit to Christ and put Christ in charge of where, we, where we're directed. Originally, at Cane Ridge, it really wasn't about independence. What it was about was unity. Yeah. So at the time, uh, the preachers in uh, America at that time, which was a brand new country, he's only 25 yeah. years old. Yeah. At the time, uh, predominantly Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians. Yeah, and uh, these revivals that they were having uh, all centered around communion. It was all about let's come together and have a common communion service. Doesn't matter if you're Baptist, doesn't matter if you're Presbyterian, doesn't matter if you're Methodist. Let's all get together and take communion together. Yeah, and uh, and, and so this had happened in a number of these smaller revivals, and then when uh, the pastor or, that, or the preacher of that church of Cane Ridge was named Barton Stone, and and he saw this happening, and so he formed a revival or said there was going to be a revival at Cane Ridge, and everybody came to that, and it turned out to be this this huge groundswell of uh, of people. And a lot of things happened at Cane Ridge that have, uh, since that time, more defined us. Yeah. Um, Barton Stone was influenced uh, by a pastor, preacher, and he heard a sermon. And that sermon, the basic idea of the sermon was that, that God loves everyone. It simply as that. Just Jesus died for everyone and God loves everyone. Well... That flew in the face of the Westminster Confession, mm -hmm. which was the, the, a major creed at that time, and the Presbyterian Church. And he was a ordained Presbyterian. And so he got up and he started preaching about how God loved everybody, which at the time was a, a major departure from Calvinistic theology, which is yeah. God picks the winners and losers. You have no choice over that. It was all determined before you were born all of this kind of thing. And if a person was predetermined to be saved and he would figure that out. Um, and when Stone started preaching that God loved everyone and he wanted everyone to come to him, people started rushing to do that. Yeah. And uh, the, 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 one of the interesting problems that happened at Cane Ridge is they had no way of dealing with that. So they were used to <laughs> nobody responding to a message. And everybody starts responding to a message, which today we would call an invitation time or decision time. Yeah. Some people would call it an altar call, yeah. whatever, right? Well, uh, Barton Stone didn't know how to deal with that. So what he did was he took all the benches out of the church. And they weren't meeting inside the church because it wasn't big enough to hold 
thousands of people. Where, where was it that time? I mean, today you see churches fill stadiums and stuff, but I mean, it you know, thinking uh, back this far, Cane Ridge Church will hold 150 people. Yeah, wow. So I mean, it's like so. Yeah, that's and it that and that was the largest uh, largest uh, log structure uh, at the time uh, I'm, east I'm, of the Mississippi. Imagine planning a revival. For 150 people to fit. And 25,000. And 25,000. Yeah. That, in the rain. That's in a, the rain. That's a Holy Spirit thing. It is. Oh, yeah. And uh, and so he took the benches outside of the church, and uh, and he said, if any of you are, are, are feeling something, if any of you are wanting to, wanting to respond in some way, go over to those benches and go kneel on those benches. And so the first uh, uh, invitation time, in what we would call restoration movement churches, was really crowd control. <laughs> he was just trying to keep things from going nutty, and and they they still kind of did anyway. Yeah. But uh, there was this there was this incredible uh, movement of God there that ended up really catching fire, and uh, churches were established. But uh, while all this positive catching fire started happening there was something very negative that was happening. And that was, that was the people that were in charge of uh, Barton Stone's uh, church said, you can't preach that. Yeah. You can't preach that God loves everybody. It goes against the Westminster Confession. It goes against our theology. And he said, well, I'm going to preach that. I'm not going to not. I'm going to do that. I want to be a Presbyterian. So there was no desire yeah. to be independent of the Presbyterian church. Uh, he was part of what was called the Springfield Presbytery at that time, this group of churches. And they demanded that uh, he would do that or he would be delicensed. And so he and four friends uh, that were at uh, Cane Ridge wrote what was called the Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery. <laughs> and basically, they dissolved that presbytery, which caused a chain reaction where they basically disfellowship Barton Stone yeah. from uh, Presbyterianism. And so uh, he became uh, probably the most iconic American figure on the front end of the Restoration Movement, which is also has called, been called the Stone-Campbell Movement. Yeah. And um, he was a, uh, uh, he was an extremely intelligent man, but he wasn't, the kind of person that would try to uh, influence people by writing books or magazines or uh, you know getting the word out that way. He wanted uh, to raise up uh, uh, new leaders, pastors, preachers that would go out and establish churches. So he kind of he was he was kind of doing that. Later on, uh, Thomas and Alexander Campbell uh, came over uh, from Ireland. And uh, Thomas Campbell had wrote uh, something called, we want to use the New Testament as our only rule of faith and practice. Yeah. And it kind of gave uh, kind of a foundational statement uh, to what they wanted to do. So there were other statements, like where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where it's silent, we're silent. Let's just unite on that. Let's yeah. just be that. And, uh, and so the whole idea behind the Restoration Movement was a, was a unity idea. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist. doesn't matter if you're a Methodist. doesn't matter if you're a... Pre it wasn't denominational. Yeah. yeah. It was a movement within denominations. Yeah. The problem was denominations didn't want any part of that movement inside their denomination. Yeah. 
And so that's where independence came from. Yeah. Well, if we can't do that as a Baptist and we can't do that as a Presbyterian, we can't do that as a Methodist, well, then maybe we need to just have independent churches and we just preach the gospel and we just preach from the New Testament. And uh, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament wasn't important, yeah. but uh, they saw the New Testament as primary. Right. Uh, to uh, the, the way model, that Christians... Like the model of Christianity. Yes, how they should live and, yeah. and act and and what God's expectations, like you said, like from Acts 2. Yeah. Going back to the source. Purest water yeah. is always at the source. Yeah. And that's what they wanted to do. As a matter of fact, they used to use the term, not restoration, but they used to use the term primitive. Because mm -hmm. they wanted to go back to the church as it was when it was yeah. first established and experience what was experienced in Acts. So there's an interesting dichotomy here of independence, not by choice, but by necessity in the name of unity mm -hmm. so that we can just unite around what the Bible says. Not, not be a denomination, but just be committed to God's word. So how, how would you explain the, the modern church, today's church, that affiliates with the restoration movement. It's not a denomination. Mm -mm. How is it different from a denomination? Okay, when, we think of, when you think in terms of a denomination, uh, denominations usually have a hierarchy and they have a central office. So like all of the churches are beholding to some sort of network. Yeah. And there is a measure of control. So like uh, offerings that are that are taken up in the local church, a portion of those offerings go to the to support the denomination. The denomination uh, may be uh, divided up uh, regionally, and they'll have leaders with names like bishop or presbyter or something along. Like in the mm -hmm. in the uh, in the Methodist church, they use bishop. In the Me uh, Presbyterian church, they use presbyter. Mm -hmm. Uh, but these are people that have a higher office. They're over a group of churches, and then they're uh, like they have an there's an expectation that you would use approved material. Gotcha. So whatever the denomination produces as material, like for children or for adults, uh, you're expected to use that. You're expected to teach that, and if you don't, there's consequences. Right, and uh, and so. Uh, denominational churches have like the centralized authority. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them have centralized ownership of buildings. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of pressure for uh, for preachers to stay inside the denomination because that's where their retirement is. That's where their health care is. Things like that. So, like, if you were to want to become independent, mm -hmm. there would be a high price to pay for that. And then there's a lot of people that. Uh, you know, traditionally, that's what they've always been. And so, you know, grandma, great grandma, what, what they were a part of this and they're buried in the cemetery in the backyard or whatever. Yeah. And it's hard to, um, to separate oneself uh, from that. It was hard then too. No, all these people that we read about historically, they all, they were all degreed and, you know, they had, they had been formally educated and they had been ordained in these churches, and they had to walk away from all of that. And yeah. that was very, very hard for them to do. But the Restoration Movement was never supposed to be a denomination. Right. It was supposed to be this movement inside churches of, uh, of unity and this idea that God loves everyone, and uh, we need to teach 
the Bible, the way that it's presented and not according to some ecclesiastical hierarchy or anything like that. That pursuit of unity inside churches, what unites us instead of the things that divide us um, with the independence for churches. But I think think one of the things that I I realized um, when we planted Ecclesia, you know, sometimes you look back at God just has these outlier moments where everything has to align. And an independent Christian church in South Carolina was there were there were independent Christian churches here, but for us to see the growth and the acceptance in the community that we saw was because churches before us had had gone through so much, uh, a lot of them paved the way. Um, but you know, one of the things I saw as a church planner is there was so many more resources for denominations to plant, yeah, because they had denominational backing, right? And and you. What was kind of ironic to me is after we had planted was learning there were independent groups, restoration groups that still backed restoration churches, but without coming with a denominational hold. Yeah. So, so still being able to say in essentials, we're finding these unities in, in, in these common practices. What are the things that unite us and being able to come together around that? But at the same point, not coming with an aspect of control of, but we own your building. We need yeah. to, you, you, you are an employee of us as a movement and without the, without the control over the future of that congregation. You know, I, I love looking at churches today that are independent yet united, but the lo- they can truly be a local church. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, let's look at some of the stuff that's happened in, in the world today and denominations struggle with if, if their hierarchy or their, or their convention decides we're going to support gay marriage or we're going to accept transgenderism or, or we're going to become egalitarian and we're going to ordain women as pastors or elders. So many things that cause division among people. If they make that decision, then their movement is behind it. And so we're seeing now splits off of denominations. We're seeing even some movements that are struggling severely. Whereas in restoration, it was kind of like, okay, what does the Bible say? And the churches are still independent and they still move with the Bible. But um, you didn't have this level of control to where, okay, if you're not going to sign these documents to say we are a blank church, then, then we have to cease to exist or we have to give our building back or we have to shut down. And, but, the, but there's also a beauty that comes along with it with accountability, with having other people that are walking this path. And so we find harmony with that accountability, with unity, and, and, and that drive to where instead of going to, well, what does, the, what does the convention say, or what do our documents say, we can go to this simple source of what does the Bible say right. about these yeah. topics. And in that, as long as, what I love is that, that pure plea to be able to come to a place of not what does our culture say, yeah. Not what do the people in our community say, or what is the social pressure saying? To be able to always have that freedom to go back and say, but what does the Bible say? And all these denominations, and I mean, this isn't meant to spike the football, but they're all failing. So, uh, you know, there's, I don't know, uh, I think there's seven uh, major denominational pillars in the American church. One of those is the Disciples of Christ. And the disciples of Christ were, you know, they were affiliated with restoration movement early on, but there were major changes that happened. That 
they uh, moved away uh, from the idea of substitutionary atonement. They moved away from the inerrancy or the infallibility of Scripture. They moved into accepting every kind of new cultural norm that came along. And that uh, denomination is in the it's in the process of disappearing. Wow. I mean, if you look at the numbers, uh, I don't know if those churches will exist in 2030, wow. 2035 anymore. So that whole pillar is going to be gone. It's, it's, in, it's, the, it's the most, of all the denominational churches in America, it's in the greatest freefall. You know, then you have the Methodist churches. And uh, the Methodist churches, uh, there was a, a major... Uh, major division over uh, the LGBTQ issue. It was the African churches that really took the the biggest stand. A lot of Methodist churches are now saying uh, they're suing and to get uh, control of their buildings so that they can be independent churches. Yeah. Same things happening uh, to some extent in the Baptists, particularly you know the largest denomination in the United States, Southern Baptists, and they'll say that they're independent churches, but they uh, they still convention together, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean this just happened. I mean there was just all this that happened started. I think uh, the biggest uh, upswell was Rick Warren and what happened after uh, he turned over ministry. It happened over the ordination of women, and uh, the term that the Southern Baptists used was friendly cooperation. So they said you are no longer in friendly cooperation because. Saddleback Church is a Southern Baptist church. They are no longer in friendly cooperation with the SBC. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and there were a number of others that did that. So uh, you can just see that that's kind of where denominationalism yeah. is. There is this humongous surge right now of non-denominationalism. Yeah. So it's, uh, and, and we're kind of the, the first, we were the first fruits of non-denominationalism yeah. in America. We kind of started that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and so what, and, and you know, you might want to say, well what, well, what are the distinctives of the Restoration Movement? Well, w- one of the major distinctives of the Restoration Movement is independence or autonomy. Yeah. It means that there is no control of the church outside of the local church. Now, the leadership in the local church is already defined in the New Testament. So we go back to the source, and in that source, we see that there was a plurality of eldership in the local church. And so the control of each local church in the independent Christian church is that eldership of that church. And they, uh, they don't have to subscribe to what anybody else says. So uh, it's messy. Yeah. So there are people in the independent Christian church or the restoration movement uh, church that would maybe way over on one side of an issue, maybe the way they read scripture, or maybe on the other side of the issue uh, of an issue because of how they read scripture. But the common denominator is we go to the scripture. We use the scripture yeah. as our only rule of faith and practice, particularly the New Testament. And so uh, if we find it there, and now, you know, people use their biblical interpretation to understand a passage in different ways. And so, uh, and we hold these two things in balance with one another, which would be grace and truth. Yeah. yeah. So we, we are saying, well, okay, what's the truth here? We debate. Yeah. 
And we can disagree. We investigate. But the bottom line is, nobody at the crossing, there's nobody from the outside that can come in and say, no, this is how you have to do it. Right. Yeah. And if you don't, then there's none of that. Then I'll leave. And, and there's none of that at Equity <laughs> either, right? No. It's, it, and there's no taking your ball and going home. No. Um, and, and, you know, I think a thing that's, that's beautiful to say in that is somebody can say, well, that sounds messy. Well, if you go back to the early church. It was messy. <laughs> it was so messy. Yeah. I mean, thinking about reading a letter from an apostle, like a letter from Paul. And so, I mean, it's really important to understand Jesus is the head of the church, and then he had apostles. So if you look at the first, the first church in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're teaching what they learned from Jesus. Yeah. So when Scripture is quoted, it's the Old Testament, and they're showing the fulfillment and how it comes together. Then they're teaching them what Jesus has taught them. Yeah. And so these Holy Spirit-inspired men are writing to the churches. And you've got people like the Apostle Paul, scholar of the Old Testament, who, who is led by the Holy Spirit, who comes and he does receive from the apostles. But one of the things that's so beautiful, and, and Jerry, I, I, you've probably thought of this, but one of the things I find so amazing is if you, as you go through the letters, especially of Paul, he establishes the local church. Mm -hmm. So we start as this local church in Jerusalem that explodes. And Jesus said in Acts 1-8, but you're going to be a global church. You're going to go from Jerusalem mm -hmm. to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They tried to hold on to that local church as long as they could until persecution came. And then they, they went out from Jerusalem and Judea. And we see that now in the fruit of America today and all over the world. But the apostles stayed. And I love that God uses the guy spreading the church out through fear and persecution to be the guy that's going to be the apostle going yeah. out. Mm -hmm. But what is amazing is you look through Paul's writings and the apostles were not going to live forever. And so the apostle Paul establishes elders. So they establish deacons in Jerusalem. But the apostle Paul is establishing elders outside of the apostles. They're kind of like the elders of the global church. But in this local church setting, he establishes the elders. He establishes deacons. He establishes the teachers. He establishes the pastors. And what I find so beautiful is when we look at John, the last apostle, writing the last word, he, is, he doesn't even call himself an elder. He doesn't even call himself an apostle. He calls himself a servant. Yeah. And he writes, once again, laying on the structure to the local churches, in the structure of the local churches, on the emphasis of the moving of the Holy Spirit, Christ is supreme, and the written word. Yeah. And so I love that it leaves off with this piece of the victory of Christ, the victory of the church, but don't add to, don't take away. Right. And so we find this compass. And one of the things that brings me great comfort is that God loved and trusted so much to send his son. His son loved and trusted so much to send the apostles in the church. And the apostles loved so much of the local church of Christ's body that they we're trusted with it. Yeah. And, and I love the fact that the Bible is about God being able to trust in people to be able to be his servants and be a picture of his love. So I want to hear this from both of you, too. Just a testimony here. Mine is that I was raised in a denominational church and accepted all the teaching from the denomination. And when I was 14 years old, I'm developing this friendship with Matt. Then we start dating. And then we start talking about Bible things because he knew ministry was where he was headed. And he started to challenge my understanding of some things in Scripture 
that I held pretty firmly. And when he first wanted to have these discussions with me, I approached it pretty arrogantly because I had been raised in Sunday school and youth group, and I went to Christian school. And so I thought that I knew something about the Bible. And he began with, with the starting point for me. He said, how do you come to Christ? And I told him what I knew from my denominational understanding. Well, you say the sinner's prayer and you come to Christ. And he goes, well, show me that in the Bible. And well, it's in there. I mean, I may not know chapter and verse, but it's in there. And that was just the starting point. He started to unravel a lot of my understanding, not by attacking it, but simply saying, show it to me in the Bible. And, and I was repeating to him denominational catchphrases. And he goes, you know what, Tina? Why don't you just read the book of Acts? Why don't you just read the book of Acts to better understand what it looks like to come to Christ, how the local church should function, what the point is. And so that's what I did. And I could not believe it because in Christian school, I had taken classes on Paul's missionary journeys. So I was sure that I knew the book of Acts and I didn't. And it was through his challenging me just to read the book of Acts that I started to realize I've never actually read the Bible for myself. Every single thing I think I know comes from disjointed, memorized verses. Romans 3.23, Revelation 3.20. The Roman, they called it the Roman Road. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Now, I love the Roman Road if you, if you travel every stump. Yeah, you, they, they, yeah, it's a bullet train. Yeah. yeah, I know. But I start reading this going, whoa, this doesn't look like what I thought it looked like. And all of a sudden, I had this epiphany like, of course that makes sense. If we want to know how the church should operate, we should look at the church in Scripture. Now, that seems like a really duh concept. But for some reason, I've now had the opportunity to share that with people. And if you've never been told that, you never thought of it. You never thought just to look back at Scripture to find the biblical example of the church. And that's not to say that anyone intentionally misled me in the church that I grew up in. But I do think that that denominationalism has fostered a system where so much of the teaching is handed down from centralized authority, from the convention, from the conference, and we're forgetting to check and see if that's what the Bible even says. And so after he challenged me, read the book of Acts, I went, you know what? I need to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because that's what the Bible said. And that's what every conversion account in the book of Acts looked like. Every single one, which is also every single one in the Bible under the new covenant. That's where they're all located. And I did that. And then right after that, I went away from my freshman year of college. So now I've got this newfound faith. I'm in a new town. I have no local church. I have no network of people. And, and the only solace I found that, that strengthened me was just reading the Bible. And so I just fell in love with this idea of we have this. This is here for us. It can teach us how we need to live, what our faith needs to look like, what the church needs to look like. And that's kind of what started this entire journey for me that has led me to sitting right here doing this Step Into Scripture podcast to support the Step Into Scripture book, which is which is my offering to God to say, I just want to help people find what I found 
And that's that I can just read the word of God and rely on that. And it started with a, a son of a Christian church pastor who himself became a Christian church pastor, just challenging me, where does the Bible say that? Where did you find it in scripture? So that's how I landed here. But I would like for both of you, if you don't mind to share, were you raised in the Christian church? If not, what brought you here? If so, what kept you here? I'd, I'd like to go first on that. Okay. Um, so so what, what just amazes me in your recollection of that is the grace you have in the arrogance and ignorance that I walked in at that same phase. Um, well, I but, thought you were brilliant and still do. Well, that's just because I'm so good looking. I know. Um, but <laughs> there was there was an extreme arrogance and ignorance in me at that time because, you know, I, I kind of look back at that version of me as Captain Aha, you know, <laughs> and a lot of my joy of reading the Bible was in these aha moments. But instead of finding growth or enlightenment, um, what I found was ways to prove people wrong. And find the flaws, you know? And so it very much in that way, you know, I would have said we're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. But there was very much a part of me that believed we're the only Christians, though, <laughs> uh, because you've not done this or you believe this. And so there was a, a huge season that reading the Bible definitely re rebuked me because I didn't see the purity of people pursuing Christ. And as I read the Bible, I, I saw how many ways God called people, but so we can look at Acts 2, and we can find a prescription. We can look at Acts chapter 8. We can look at Acts chapter 9. We can look at Acts chapter 10, and we can take Acts chapter 11. And we find people that are kind of God-reaching people in, in multiple ways, even Acts 17. you know, with use, Here's this guy, Paul, that is an amazing evangelist that has persecuted the church, that was so righteous as a Jew, but now he's using a pagan altar to teach Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, and and I looked at these examples and I started realizing the call is back to the word, but, but unifying with people and not catching people in, oh, you're all wrong and you're all in need of destruction. I love Acts 19 because Paul looks at some guys and he's like, hey, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're like, we didn't even know there was such a thing. And they're disciples. You know, and it does not call them lost. It doesn't say they're not disciples. They're disciples. And, you know, he goes into, well, which baptism did you receive? And, and they say John's. Well, he doesn't sit there and say, Are you crummy disciples of John. He teaches them more. Yeah. And if you look in Acts chapter 18 with Priscilla and Aquila, they teach him more adequately. And I started realizing I'm being taught more adequately right now. And their arrogance is in me. And there, there are things that I don't know. And I need to be humble enough to learn them, but I need to stop looking at other people as, as my, my opposition, and I need to be a Christian that's focusing on unity of how do we bring people together in unity. We're going we're gonna to have things that are different, um, and, and, and some things we can come together in a harmony of Scripture. And, and so during that era of my life, um, I'd been raised by a, a Christian church pastor, and one of the things that I love about looking back at lessons I was learning, some I learned out of my own ignorance, because there are some passages you can look at and see people are teaching wrong, and it's as plain as the nose on your face. And that can feel like a power to you. Yeah. And my dad was a, a, a pastor that had a doctorate, and um, he, I never knew in his lifetime he had a doctorate till the end. Um, 
I never knew the level of education. He never lorded that over people. He just loved to preach Jesus to all people. Yeah. And he loved to preach the simplicity of the Bible. Um, and I kind of was this person thinking I'm, I'm, I'm wielding this, this uh, powerful weapon of Scripture to be able to find an axe in 238s, <laughs> if you will. Um, and I was so quick to point out where people had... Um, denominational beliefs or beliefs that were cultural beliefs. And a lot of it's not even denominational. A lot of it's just American culture over the past 75 yeah. to 100 years, um, practices that people followed. And, and so I found this power in attacking people in weakness. And in that, finding that I did a better job repulsing people and not uniting people. And so the pursuit of Scripture for me came to a place of one, Finding out pretty much the same thing Barton W. Stone did. God loves all people. And we are his children. And so we can call people into unity through sharing with one another. Or we can call people towards a uni unity that actually divides people because we're hostile. Yeah. And we act arrogant towards them. And one of the things I've found is some of the most devout followers of Jesus I know um, theologically, I've not aligned with, but missionally have been inspired by. Mm -hmm. And what I found is when we, we find a common ground in our love and our pursuit and our dedication to Christ, our submission to him, then we find our submission to his word. And when we're co-laborers in his kingdom and we're finding submission to his word, we find this harmony to where we can read together without opposition. Because now uh, it's not about the pursuit of who's right and who's yeah. wrong. It's two brothers that trust each other. They're in the pursuit of what does Christ want us to do. Yeah. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the power that I had felt in the beginning of being able to wield Scripture, I found was the same force I was fighting against. And when I found the beauty of submitting to the Word of God, um, I found a beauty of others following that submission to where it was no longer what we wanted the Word of God to be, but it was what does the Word of God say. Yeah. And so... I grew up in the Restoration, but I wouldn't say that I fully appreciated it because I saw this ability to wield it yeah. and, and, and still make it separate. But as, as I grew in Scripture, I fell in love with what the movement was, yeah. this call to bringing the body together and being able to submit to Scripture in harmony with one another, working with one another, and in, in that unity that Jesus prayed for. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of a mutt. Uh, when it comes to uh, my upbringing uh, with regards to my you know religious background my uh, my father uh, was raised in uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this but the Dunkard Church which is the well, Church of the Brethren but there was a a very Mennonite like group inside the Church of the Brethren and they were called uh, Dunkards goes back to Europe, and uh, uh, there were a lot of rules uh, having to do with simplicity, uh, like uh, you couldn't have buttons on your shirt. Uh, but you all had great donuts. <laughs> women <laughs> women uh, would cover their heads with a, with a prayer shawl. Uh, they had uh, love feasts. Uh, they uh, washed feet, which was part of the love feast. Uh, you had to be baptized in running water. My dad was baptized in February in Indiana. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that was a, quite an experience for him. Anyway, that was his upbringing. 
my mother uh, was raised in the Methodist Church. Uh, and uh, my father moved from southern Indiana uh, to Indianapolis. And his brother, uh, his older brother, uh, got him a job. It was during the Great Depression. And um, he went to church, and he saw my mother, and he told my, my uncle, his brother, he goes, I'm going to marry that girl. He saw, just saw her and said, wow. I'm going to marry that girl. And uh, my uncle, Walter, said, she would never have anything to do with you. <laughs> I know who she is. She would never. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, they got married. And, uh, had, uh, and so they were involved in the Methodist Church. Uh, at the time, the Methodist Church was called the Holy Methodist Church uh, because they were a holiness movement church. There was lots of things you couldn't do okay. in, the, in the Methodist Church. Uh, you know, uh, they were against, like, you couldn't play cards, you couldn't go to movies, and you had, you, you, there's just a lot of rules about holiness. And so they kind of grew up that way. Uh, I came along in 1959. I was the last of six kids. And, uh, and so in the Methodist church, uh, you're uh, christened as an infant. So they have, a, they have like, it looks like a bird bath, a little font with a, with a lid on top and a little cross. And uh, you, you bring your baby up there and they kind of wet the baby's forehead. And then later on, when you're older, you go through a confirmation class. Well, uh, so that's what happened to me. So I made no decision. I was just a baby at the time. And by the time I was five years old, my parents left the Methodist Church because in Indianapolis, uh, there was a lot of stuff that began to happen in the early 60s in the Methodist Church with regards to what they were teaching. Mm -hmm. So they were actually, they began to teach the Methodist material uh, was teaching that all of the things in the book of Genesis were myths. Wow. Mm. Uh, my father was the Sunday school superintendent. My mother was a Sunday school teacher, kids. She goes to my dad, and she goes, they're asking me to teach this. And he goes, well, just don't. Just, just teach the Bible. <laughs> so she did that, and, of course, she got in trouble because she wasn't teaching the material that was prescribed. So my mother was a very intelligent woman, and she wrote a thesis. She presented it to the, uh, the church and, and read it in front of the church. And there were a, a lot of men uh, from uh, the hierarchy of the United Methodist Church that came in and sat in the back. And uh, the independent Christian churches in Indianapolis was a lot born out of a diaspora from the Methodist Church. Okay. And so my parents were part of that. Well, uh, my mom and dad decided to, to join with some other couples and plant a church. And we met in a, a municipal courthouse. So my early years in, a, in, in the church really weren't in a church building. They were in a courthouse. Yeah. And uh, my, my dad and I would go there on Saturday night, and we would mop it, and we would clean it, and we would set up chairs. And then Sunday, uh, we would have church, and then we had to tear it all back down. Yeah. So we were doing that in the early 60s when I was like wow. 1967, 1968. And uh, it was there. I was eight years old. And uh, I started to hear some of these things about sin and needing a savior. And so I started to ask my father about that. And I said, I, do I need to become a Christian? He goes, and I remember him saying to me, you don't need to become a Christian until you reach the age of accountability. Eight-year-olds don't understand that word. Yeah. And I was like, what in the world does that mean? 
And I remember talking to my Sunday school teacher, and she said, uh, she said, it's when you know that when whatever it is that you're doing, and it's wrong, that it's not just wrong because your parents say it's wrong, or the church says it's wrong, you mm -hmm. understand that God thinks that's wrong. Yeah. And when you understand that God thinks that's wrong, then you're accountable to that. That is a profoundly deep statement. So this was your Sunday school that teacher my Sunday school at eight teacher. years old. That is so simple and it's just profoundly. It's very, very simple. I've said I've I've met so many people that they have like well the age of accountability. They, they and I've heard it. That. I've heard it from everywhere to twelve to nineteen, and the way that she articulated that to you was so beautiful. Biblically, it's in Romans seven, where Paul says, "I was once alive apart from the law, but when uh, the commandment came, I you know he talks about coveting. Yeah, and he goes, well, I realized I've been doing this the whole time. Yeah. Well, that's what." That's what happened to me. I, at eight years old, I realized I'm doing a lot of things that I know that God doesn't want me to do. And, uh, and so I went back to my father and I said, uh, I, think I, I think I know what this is. And he asked me some questions about Jesus. And I was able to answer those questions. And um, we were in a courthouse. There's no baptism or anything. But, <laughs> so we went to Westwood Country Club. And there was a swimming pool. And this was back in the day when people, normal people, didn't baptize anybody else. Only the pastor could do that. And uh, you didn't get baptized in a gown. You didn't have any of that stuff that a lot of times, you know, churches have. So, I mean, you wore your Sunday clothes. And I remember I was in my, I was in my nice clothes. And my, I remember this, I'll never forget this, um, that I, 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 I took my shoes off, had my socks on, had my black suit pants on a white shirt and I looked over and it was a country club so there was like the benches where you can see like a wooden benches where swimmers sit and I looked over and there's my dad he's taking off his jacket and he's taking off his tie and he took off his shoes wow and uh he went down in the water with me now at the time that was it was unheard of that your father would ever be able to baptize you. So the minister baptized wow. me. But my father was standing there with his arms folded, like making sure it was done right. Yeah. Uh, and I have a picture of that with me in a black and old black and white picture with me under the water, my feet sticking up, <laughs> and my dad standing there with his arms folded. It's one of the, it's, it's it's a precious precious to me. So that's when how I accepted Christ. And I would say that church was a Bible church. It was more uh I would say theologically Baptist leaning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that's, that's how I, I began. When I was 12 years old, that church disbanded, and we went to a restoration movement, independent Christian church on the west side of Indianapolis. And uh, they had uh, uh, a children's program. Uh, I was in sixth grade, children's program called Jet Cadets. And uh, it's from fourth to sixth grade. Churches, churches have always just come up with. <laughs> oh well, the this was standard names. publishing material. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, long story, but uh, uh, my parents got involved. I got involved, uh, and I started to really learn things from the Bible. But I have to tell you, in that church, there was nothing ever taught about anything. I didn't know anything about restoration movement. Yeah. Um. Fast forward to when I'm 20. Uh, we had left that church. We were going to a different church, Restoration Movement Church. Still didn't know anything about it. If you would have asked me, I wouldn't have, because they never talked about it, preached about it. 
uh, I'm sitting in church, um, and I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, God called me to the ministry. I was getting ready for my third year, business major at Indiana University, and I didn't even like preachers that much. And I, and uh, and God does that to me. Yeah. And uh, and I won't go into it, but I, I knew where I, I where I was supposed to go, a place I'd never been to before, Ozark. Uh, at the time, it was Ozark Bible College. And uh, we didn't have any money, but God took care of it. God took care of all of it. My parents didn't have any money to send me, uh, and I, I went there. I had been there two weeks, and uh, there was the big group in the country at the time. This tells me how, everybody how old I am. Was the Imperials? <laughs> Rust half and the Imperials. You know, I don't uh, even know what that means. Oh. What just just <laughs> I'll tell you what Google the water grave. Okay. If you want to hear a great imperial song, I'm okay. going. I'm going to. I'm going to go down in the water. I'm going to be buried alive. It's beautiful. Anyway, they were a big deal back then, and um, there was a young lady who was I think 19 mm-hmm. that opened for them that you may have heard of, named Amy Grant. Yep. Just her, her guitar, and her father's eyes. That's what she was singing. That kind of stuff. Everybody wanted to hear the Imperials. They didn't want to hear Emmy Grant back then. <laughs> anyway, so I, I was sitting there, brand new, 20-year-old. I was a transfer student, so I was older than these other people I was sitting with. And these all these Restoration Movement people, whole lot, whole row full of them, all there to see the Imperials and Amy Grant. And the Imperials got done with their concert. They said something you're very familiar with. I want every head bowed. I want every eye closed. You know, if you're here today and you really believe that God is calling you, what I want you to do is just slip up your hand. No one's looking. Just slip up your hand. You know, of course, people are peeking, seeing who's slipping up their hands. Then I want you to pray this prayer with me. Every head bowed and closed, pray this prayer with me. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. You know this one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was raised with that. I was fine with that. Yeah. Everybody, everybody in the aisle next to me turns into a jihadist. <laughs> I mean, they really, they want to disrupt the whole thing because all these people are died in the whole restoration movement. They're not talking about baptism. And... Rock my world. And uh, I came home from that because I never saw that kind of judgmentalism and anger. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm thinking, what's wrong here? I don't understand what's wrong. Um, I'm only two weeks into Bible college. And uh, I seriously thought about leaving. Like mm-hmm. I had misunderstood God. And uh, maybe this isn't the right place for me. And I went to a professor. And I said... Look, this is what happened. I told him what happened. And I said, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. And I don't know why people think this way about, like, you're so legalistic when it comes to baptism and stuff. I need for you to tell me what the answer is. He goes, nope, I'm not doing it. You're going to go find the answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he goes, what I want you to do, here's your assignment, Jerry. You're going to go back to your dorm. You're going to look up every place in the New Testament that baptism is mentioned. And you're going to read it, and you're going to diagram it, 
and then you're going to come up with that conclusion. And I went back to my dorm and I started to study and I read every passage in the New Testament yeah. that talked about baptism. Like, what is that? What, what, why are they, you know? And then I got to 1 Peter chapter 3. Yeah. You had a question. He asked you a question. Show me the sinner's prayer in the Bible. Well, I'm going to. Because <laughs> it is in there. Yeah. It's in 1 Peter 3.21. What it says, it talks about Noah and his family being saved through the water in an ark. And then he says, and I'm going to quote it in the older version of Scripture, the like figure, whereunto baptism now also saves you. Not the removal of filth or dirt from the flesh, yeah. but an answer of a good conscience toward God. And uh, I thought that was interesting because it actually said baptism saves you. Yeah. So I was like, wait a minute. Now, I, I, I'd read these other <clears throat> passages, but that one just was kind of like in your face. Yeah. And, and it says it's not like removing dirt from your body, but then it says an answer. And so I started looking those words up. Like, what, is that, what does that word mean? Well, good conscience was actually clear conscience. And um, a, a pledge or an answer, the way it was translated, mm -hmm. is also a plea. Mm. So what I, I went back and I looked at Scripture, baptism, where like figure into baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt and flesh, but, but a plea to God for yeah. a clear conscience. So how do I get a clear? I don't get a clear conscience since I started with a guilty one, mm. right? So, in other words, I have to realize I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I have a guilty conscience. I need to have a clear. How do I get a clear conscience if I have a guilty? I have to have forgiveness. Yeah. yeah. I have to ask for forgiveness and I have to receive forgiveness. Right? This is my plea. Yeah. So I have. So, the sinner's prayer is real. It's just not anything you say in words. Right. The, God is telling you, the Apostle Paul, Peter, they're telling you, this is how he wants you to ask him. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe we want to ask him this way or that way, but this is, this is the way I want you to ask me is I want you to identify with my son in his death, burial, and resurrection. Yes. I want you to go down the water, be buried in the water, be rise up. Walking into civil life. This is what I want you to do. And I said, that's my answer. I went back to my professor. I go, I have my answer. I stayed there. Graduated in three, in three years. But to me, the point is, that's the peace came to me through the word of God. I didn't need to argue with those other yeah. people. I didn't need to. And they were not acting like they, they should have acted. No. This is how I came into the restoration movement. It was, I mean, there was a trial by fire. Even though I'd been in the church since I was 12 years old, I really didn't know what that meant. And when I and, and, it, and it isn't just about baptism; it's about everything. Yeah. Like everything you like. Okay, well, how often should we take communion, and why, and what should it look like yeah. when we do it, and you know, like what what should church look like? How should it be formed? What should the government of the church be? Any question you have, just go to the New Testament. Yep. And and if we have this common ground. It's going to be okay. Yeah. You might disagree with one another, but you can disagree agreeably. And, uh, and I have a lot of friends that have different views on different things. And they might look at this, this word or this phrase and, 
And, uh, and, and since that time, you know, and I, you know, a lot of people say, well, you guys are those, those guys that, you know, you believe that if you're not baptized, you're going to go to hell. I've never said that to nope. a person. Me either. It, you know why? Because <laughs> the Bible didn't say it. Right. But, uh, I've been accused of it, but never said it. That's right. We, we never, we don't say that. We just say, this is part of the process right. that God s- speaks to us. And so we're, the, the Bible's spoken. So this is what we're going to do. You know, and by the way, I mean, if you're talking about that. I would a whole. I mean, you you stand on a promise every time. Like when I preach on baptism, you stand on a promise. If we have been united with Him in the likeness of His death, we will certainly be united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. Yeah. That's a promise, right? If then, if yeah. you do this, then I'm going to do this. That's in Romans chapter six, right? Yeah. So, look, are you going to have to depend on God's mercy? Yeah. Are you going to have to depend? Yeah. So am I. Well. I got enough of mercy that I'm going to have to depend on. How about I stand on a promise or two? That's it. <laughs> All right. That's what, I mean, that's a long answer, but you asked me. That's, that's, a, that's a great answer, and I appreciate how you developed that. So, Jerry, to close this out, and, and you've said it in many words, but in summary, would you make the restoration plea? So um, the restoration plea is... Uh, founded on the blood of Jesus Christ, because that's the only thing that saves you. It's not anything that you do or any affiliation with any church, uh, organization. Uh, it's none of that. It's, it's just the blood of Jesus Christ, because that's what paid for your sin. All these other things uh, are things that we understand in the New Testament, but it's all based on that. So uh, Restoration Movement people believe in the gospel, and that the gospel is that Jesus Christ came, He died for you, was buried, He rose from the th- on the third day, He lives today, He ascended into heaven, He lives today. And when we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, then uh, we become children of God and we become inheritors of eternity. Yeah. So uh, the root of the, or the source of uh, the restoration movement is in the gospel, that God can restore you. And, uh, and he does that through his son. Um, everything else that we know comes from the New Testament. And even though the Old Testament informs the New Testament, the New Testament is our rule of faith and practice. So we want to do Bible things in Bible ways. Yeah. We want to call them by Bible names. And so what we do and why we do them and when we do them and how we do them are all defined biblically. So some of those that may stand out, one I just talked about, and that that's baptism. Yeah. We don't uh, we don't sprinkle mm-hmm. because there's actually a Greek word for that. It's called rantizo. This is, but the only word that's used in the Greek language is baptizo, which is which means to immerse. Yeah. It's the same word they use for a man who drowned or a ship that sank. So uh, you don't you know ships don't. Uh, they don't go down when they get rained on, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and the only time that word rantizo is used in the New Testament is with blood. It has to do with wow. sprinkling blood with, on the altar. So that's why we baptize. We immerse because that's what we see, and we we don't just understand it uh, from the word standpoint. But we also see it illustrated. Yeah. And all of the ancient uh, archaeology reinforces that truth that that's how that was done. Uh, at that time, we take communion on the first day of the week. Um, communion, different, you know, they may call it the Lord's Supper, they may call it the Eucharist, 
whatever you, uh, whatever you call it, these things that are emblematic of the body and the blood of Jesus. Again, that's recalling us back to the gospel, just like baptism, calling us back to the gospel. Yeah. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, we see that uh, they started out taking communion with every meal, and, uh, and they were taking it in homes. And uh, as the church developed and evolved, it became a practice on the first day of the week, which was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So once again, it's hearkening you back to the gospel. Yes. Uh, and so uh, uh, New Testament churches, Restoration Movement churches are trying to restore that practice. So uh, whether you're a non-believer coming to Christ, whether you're a believer that's in Christ, uh, these two ordinances... Uh, are there for that. We believe in local autonomy, like every church has its own eldership, yeah. uh, that we are loosely, a loosely connected fellowship of churches that have no control over each other. So we're not denominational, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but we can be in fellowship, yeah. just like uh, Ecclesia and the Crossing are in fellowship. Yeah. And two are better than one because we learn a lot from each other, right? Yeah. And we get strengthened from each other. And so there's there are um, there are over ten thousand uh, restoration movement churches that are Bible believing restoration uh, movement churches uh, across the country, and uh, and so and some of the biggest churches and most uh, successful churches out there yeah. are restoration movement churches. The rest that's the restoration plea uh, to me is that uh, we use the New Testament as our only rule of faith and practice. Uh, we don't put any other uh, creed or any other uh, legal things on people. Uh, that uh, leadership is in the local church and uh, not beyond that. And uh, that we are centered on the gospel. And what we want to do is we want to share that gospel with everyone. Yeah. Well, everyone. Uh, is there anything that you want to add to that as far as restoration plea? That's really pretty much it. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Matt, anything you want to add to that? I, you know, I, th I, think, I think one of the things that's most beautiful is, you know, again, one of the things that has, has really shaped my life is we don't sit on God's throne mm -hmm. and we don't intend to, to be the judges at the end that's going to say who gets right. into heaven and who goes to hell. Um, we hold ourselves accountable to teaching as clear and as truthful and as accurate as we can, but there's, there's grace. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that, that I think the restoration plea really calls me to um, is there is an accountability. We have to stand on truth. Like yeah. we are held to a standard to teach the truth because that's what we're saying we're going to do. We're right. saying we want to restore that. And so there's an accountability with it. But if there's a freedom in it is I don't have to be Jesus. Yeah. I can't do the saving work of Jesus Christ. I'm not the Holy Spirit. It's not on me to make sure people are, are being moved as he moves them, but it is on me as a teacher that's going to be held accountable and judged, and it's on me as a child of God to pursue my Father's will, my Savior's will, and to as adequately and clearly as I can represent them to the world of his children and those that are not yet his children. Yeah. And the restoration plea to me is so beautiful because in the... So I'm, I'm not following Barton W. Stone. I'm not following Alexander Campbell. And I'm not following Jerry Harris, but I am inspired by this desire and this commitment to putting Christ first 
in restoring what Christ called us to do. And one of the things I find so powerful in it is I have been restored. And so, you know, just the whole plea of Christ restores us, so we should be trying our best to restore his will. Yes. And the word commission, to be sent together, whether it be communion, us coming and having union, us, us coming together, or us going together. I think one of the most beautiful things we have is that in a movement, we are restoring the gospel presentation, the message, the carrying out, the unified, if they be one, message that Jesus prayed for. And the other part of it is we are holding each other accountable, but also encouraging one another, and we're doing it together, and two are better than one. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I love, besides just the movement, is having other brothers that are doing it, is because I get to learn from other people's mistakes, and people get to learn from mine, but there is a network inside of us as Christians yeah. to where we can call one another up, we can face the same struggles. We can, we can have the same desire to learn and having a network of one another to where we can encourage one another, learn from one another. And, uh, you know, Jerry's accountability in my life and inspiration in my life. Yeah. And so to me, having a movement that's goal is to restore can, can only drive us in positive ways. Well, everything that you have described here really is the heart behind the book, Step Into Scripture. It's the heart behind this podcast just helping people recognize that the answers to all matters of faith and practice are found in the Word of God. He has made that available to us. We can understand it. It interprets itself. What is shadowed is revealed. What is promised is fulfilled. And if what you've heard here today resonates with you, that you just want to be a Bible-believing Christian you just want to be part of a church that looks like the one Jesus built, then, then this is probably your tribe, and I would encourage you to seek that out. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great season, answering lots of questions, and I can't wait to be back with you next week where Jerry's wife Allison is going to be joining me, and we are digging into a six-part mini-series on marriage using the book Song of Solomon. It's going to get a little saucy, so we'll see you back here then.